Welcome to Podshot, everyone. Uh, I'm Seb. This is going to be a slightly different episode than usual because we only have two people here. Um, and in the spirit of changing the usual format of the show, I'm not going to be the one to ask the Podshot question this week. That's going to be the other beautiful person that's sitting in a room connected on Zoom to me. And that is Lorcan. Lorcan, how are you and what is your question? Hi, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. Um, decent Monday to start the week. Um, yeah, we're recording on a Monday for listeners. Um, and I don't have this portrait question written down, so do bear with me. Um, so, uh, and this is a question uh, to the listeners as much as it is to you, Seb, and the other members of um, this podcast. So if you were to re-simulate the entirety of human history, but the independent variable, uh, the only thing that changed was the amount of time it takes for pasta to boil. So on average, it's about 10 to 12 minutes now. Um, let's say on average, it was 30 to 35 minutes. What would the world look like? What would Italian cuisine look like? Um, would pasta be quote unquote appropriated by another um, part of the world, another cuisine? Um, would it be cheaper? Cheaper Because it's less convenient and resemble like a carb sort of like, like potato. Um, yeah, and that that's it. <laughs> How did you come up with this? <laughs> oh, I, I was making uh, pasta when I was uh, coming up with it. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I, I, I thought so. Okay, just a general question, because there's one thing that stuck out to me. If you were to say that pasta takes about 30 minutes instead of 12 to boil, would that be considered more or less luxurious or sort of, I, I don't know how to phrase this correctly. So it would genuinely mean there's more effort that would go into it and probably as an extent be more creative in the ways it's been, been prepared and everything. So it could have perhaps changed into a more delicacy type meal rather than a convenience type meal. That would, was my first guess that that would have been on my mind when that question was asked. I, I think the, I think there are no wrong or right answers in this. Um, <laughs> I think that's, that's a sensible answer, but none of these answers are exhaustive. And I'm, I'm definitely curious to hear what anyone comes up with. If indeed they decide to spend 280 characters writing, um, a mini thesis but yeah let's jump into the game then <laughs> just, just quickly since since you the you're the one that brought it up um what was your first take when when coming up with that question my my first one was a boring one um in that it's it would take longer to cook it would be cheaper on the market um it could reach different as it does now reach different parts of the world it's not uh, something that can only grow in one particular region um although it's concentrated to be fair um so would therefore resemble something like potato um and would have that sort of reputation as a as a carbohydrate um but i thought about it because pasta is like one of my favorite foods um so i do wonder whether it would have sort of whether carbonara would exist was basically my thought process because i was making carbonara at the time um, but that being said, I was making carbonara with goju chang, um, which is, it's, it's like, um, it's like an Asian paste. 
mm. like used right. in like curries and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's a cross-cultural encounter there. Um, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think that's just about enough pasta talk for one, <laughs> one podcast. <laughs> so uh, let's just quickly get into the game summary. After an away trip to Newcastle, Arsenal had two home matches this week. The first one was against Sevilla in the Champions League, whom Arsenal easily dismantled in a 2-0 win that sent Nor the North London club four points clear at the top of Group B. In the Premier League, Arsenal faced a Burnley side that began the weekend at the bottom of the Premier League table, and this is where they'd stay. Arsenal dominated possession from the first whistle, though struggled to manufacture clear chances as Burnley found initial success in a defensive approach that sought to block out the middle of the pitch. Arsenal picked up the pace in the final 15 minutes of the first half before Leandro Trossard converted from close range, apparently hurting himself in the process. In the second half, Burnley equalized in the 54th minute, but that didn't last long. Saliba headed in, again from close range, from a corner before Alexander Zinchenko added another... The game seemed to be petering out before it was sullied by a red card shown to substitute Fabio Vieira, whose high challenge was deemed reckless. Still, 3-1 to the Arsenal. So that was the last week. A nice contrast, I'd say, to the sour and dour week that was the week before. Um, and I think since both of these games have some pretty important um, tactical themes to them, I think it's it's merited that we discussed them sort of together um and we have three themes in particular that we wanted to focus on um the first one is probably the man of the match for the burnley game and that's alexander zinchenko who came back in after uh tomiyasu's display against sevilla though not for a lack of trying from from tomiyasu who just went over to the other side to substitute the injured ben white I think it's not an unfair statement to say this was a very, very good performance from Zinchenko and one that does merit some discussion. Uh, Logan, what did you think of it? Absolutely, I'd agree with that. Um, I think it's it's also, you know, it comes against the grain of of Arsenal discourse, at least on Twitter, which obviously isn't, you know, the real world. But um, How dare you say Twitter isn't the real world, by the way. <laughs> the chronically online really disagree. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, the, and the merits of playing Tommy Asu left back, obviously we all know them. Um, and they prim they're primarily, uh, the, the upside he gives you on, in rest defense, as well as other things, obviously. Um, and that's all fine, but inevitably he, you know, he has a different function to Zinchenko in the buildup. And I think this was again, just a, a, another game where we saw just how special Zinchenko is. And we do take it for granted. Um, I don't think there's another fullback in world football who's who quite has his skill set. I think the closest is probably Rico Lewis. And I think it, it probably frames general conversations about inverted fullbacks. Um, I know I'm straying off topic already here, um, but we just use that that term. Um, and I think Sinchenko is one of a kind. And we saw that in the Burnley display. Um I think really quickly on, on the defensive end, because, you know, that's the upside of having Tomiyasu at left back. Zinchenko won 13 of his duels, which is, which led, um, and I think he is somewhat underrated in that, in that aspect of the game. I think he's targeted because 1v1, he's not brilliant. Um, but in terms of duels, as it were, 
and I know there are many different kinds of duels, but he, he had se seven aerial wins, for example. Yeah, um, that was what I wanted to mention. He won like seven of eight of his aerial duels as well. Yeah, like that's, I mean, he's really strong in the air. So when he yeah. gets, you know, when, whenever, yeah, whenever Trossard and Zinchenko, I, I made this remark during the game, whenever Trossard and Zinchenko are winning their duels against Burnley, I think it's going to be a long day for them. Yeah. The thing that comes to mind with this is if it's even a correct way to, to sum up Zinchenko by, by, by labeling him a fullback, because one, his qualities are just kind of contradictory to what you'd imagine a fullback to be. He spends 30% of the game, maybe even less, in areas that you would traditionally as associate with a fullback. And even within fullbacks, the, the variety of skills that people like Zinchenko and Tomiyasu give you are just so varied that labeling them both as the same position just seems a bit counterintuitive to me. Yeah, no, it's 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 funny how sort of at least the Pep style inverted fullback came in as someone who could kind of replicate what the pivot does to have two pivots there. And now when you look at the Arsenal case, the pivot, as it were, is again, not for this game, it was Jorginho, but the pivot is sometimes Declan Rice. And suddenly we have Zinchenko, who's a nominal, as you say, nominal fullback, um, who's doing that pivot stuff better than the pivot that we've signed at £100 million. But I think a lot of what we've asked him to do this season hasn't, we haven't necessarily seen um, the upsides from it insofar as we're, at least we're, we're, we're looking back at what we did last year, um, at least in the, in the build-up sequences. And it's slightly different this year. And we, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast before, whether that suits Inchenko. Um, I wondered if it did. And I think, mainly in the staggering of the pivots, which I think we'll, we'll get into. And I think this game, as well as a severe one for different reasons, was the most successful iteration of this sort of new building style that we've adopted this season. Yeah, we'll get onto that in a second. I just wanted to mention one more thing. I, I spoke about the Tomiyasu and Sinchenko differences in their different profiles. And I think that leads on quite nicely to A, the tactical variety those two bring because when I saw the team sheet against Burnley I was pretty much convinced that Zinchenko would start not just because we heard the Ben White news beforehand but it just seemed logical that against a team that was going to be a lot more defensive than than the team we had just faced uh th those qualities were far more usable than than those of Tomiyasu in that role specifically with Ben White on the other side and what I wanted to ask you just there was though they are playing in the same role when they are on the team sheet, how far their sort of profiles and what they do on the pitch differs. Let's take the Sevilla and, and Burnley game as an example. How far those two players differ in terms of what they do when they play in that specific position? Yeah, completely. Um, I, I would say they don't really have the same role. I think if you were to take a screenshot at any given time of the game, you could be led to believe that they're doing some of the same things. And I think they are. I think inevitably any left back on that side has to be tasked with inverting. Um, it's just how they do that. Um, and I think Tommy Esu has got much better at inverting to receive sometimes off of the centre-backs, to pin, as it were. But that's not why he's there. I think he's there, as I said at the very beginning, for his defensive upside. So it's what he can give you in possession. I think he's incredibly two-footed. I think he's, he has brilliant spatial awareness. 
um, and is brilliant technically. So can cope in sort of game states where he has to receive with back to goal. But ideally, you don't want him to be doing that as much as Zinchenko. And as such, we see him do different things. So we see him bombing forward in the inside channel, um, which we saw in, for the goal against City. He was like a target man all of yeah. a sudden. Um, and we actually saw that with Timber a little bit when when Timber played at left back. Yeah. But yeah, they are, as you said, they are different roles. Yeah. The, the funny thing is you mentioned there the defensive to security he brings, and I, I completely agree with that. I, I kind of saw the, the parallel to what you were tweeting during the City game about Manuel Akanji playing uh, the, the centre-back come pivot role, which he does similar to John Stones, but in a di completely different way to John Stones. Yeah. Uh, on the last podcast, I think I, I labeled Tomiyasu as a sort of backfiller, where his non-angle bias, if, if we want to call it that, means he's able to receive in basically any zone he's in. Yeah. Uh, though you don't want him to receive constantly, which means he's the perfect guy to, in your structure that you have, with Declan Rice coming deeper at times and going higher at times, having him backfill in the positions that are emptied by other players moving. Whereas with Sinchenko, he's a primary focus. He, he's literally a pivot in what the pivot is supposed to be, which is the game pivoting around them. Um, and, and there you see the kind of differences between them uh, in, in how they play those roles. And I think that's a nice contrast and something that you also mentioned uh, on Twitter, which I saw was the, the general preoccupation top coaches currently have with uh, security and rest defense. And both the Akanji example and the, and the Tomiyasu example kind of fill into that. Absolutely. And I, I think it's worth noting as well, you don't, I think Im implicit in the argument that someone like Tomiyasu should be playing left back, which is kind of in the, the general tactical trend of centre-backs playing at full-back for defensive security. And we saw it with City, we saw it with Arsenal. You you get that defensive upside and you get that control and transition, as it were, but you do lose. Um, you don't suddenly, you don't, you can't just get what Zinchenko gives you by calling an, a centre-back inverted, um, which... Again, and I think Zinchenko has been an afterthought this season, and understandably so, because of how we were undone at times last season in defensive transition. But it's worth noting that, I mean, Zinchenko has a, an insane skill set, and we saw it as you just noted. He was, he was sort. He's almost used as like a point guard in basketball. He's the primary ball handler. Yeah, yeah. He spreads play. He, he's the one who drops when we're we're staggering the pivot, the pivots. He's the one. You know, he's. He, and he does some of the left-back duties as well. Yeah. So on his day, Zinchenko is is, is brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think genu generally this comes back to what we've been talking about for ages, which is that those two things are basically a trade-off of one another. And it's kind of instructive that Jorginho has always been there when Tomiyasu has played left-back, considering, again, to draw the parallel to the Sevilla game and the Burnley game. In Sevilla, Jorginho had about 80 touches-ish, uh, to Tomiyasu's 40-ish. Again, those numbers are off the top of my head. While in uh, in the Burnley game, Jorginho had about half the touches that, that Zinchenko had. So you, you were kind of... By having Tomiyasu there as added security in rest defense, you are delegating the duties that you would normally have with Zinchenko over to another player that whose skill set probably fits that of Zinchenko best in those areas. Um, so yeah. there again, you always see those... 
those sort of marginal trade-offs you have when when coaches do different things in different different game states and different situations. Um, but I think that's enough on Zinchenko as a whole. Uh, another thing we wanted to mention, uh, because you've wrote on it again, the the consummate professional you are and great writer that you are, <laughs> I have to say. Um, and that's about pivot staggering, uh, something we've talked about two weeks ago, I think. Uh, and and we're probably going to talk a bit more about considering it's been quite a prevalent theme so far uh, in, in recent games, especially with the new pivot we've formed with Jorginho and Rice, if you want to count them as such. Um, I'm just going to give you free reign here. Um, I'm going to rein you in once you're, you're, <laughs> your tactical lingo becomes a bit too much for the average listener. But uh, what was your, your general assessment on, on that subject? Yeah, I, I suppose I'm not going to go over the same ground. Yeah. In terms of how we, we've we've built the season, I think everyone will know the broad differences from from this season and, and last season. I think we've seen. I think we described it as a whole last time where we've seen a pivot dropping out situationally, almost into the back line, or in between the the first line and the second line, which they vacated. Um, so they don't have to receive back to goal also because op- the opposition seems to be um, blocking off access to the middle so to go around and that sacrificed the I think I, I used the, the term it sacrificed the structural integrity of the middle because you can't pin the middle so you have to go around the sides and that's therefore framed the way a lot of our attacks have gone down the sides and and the, the central access problem which is much documented at this point I think a nice way just quickly to to phrase that that, that I found was our general's build-up structure is so much less static than it was last season. Yeah. In Insofar that last season you could basically map out where each individual would be in a normal build-up situation. And this year there's so much variance both in in-game and how different people uh, behave in, in certain instances and just generally how different profiles react in different situations. There's a lot more variance in, in who plays and how they actually play. So... The, the the staticness and sort of predictability is a bit of a negatively connotated word, but I think it 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 holds true in this instance that our build up was sort of predictable, but not sort of negatively predictable. Yeah, Whereas completely. now it, it's it's a lot more varied in in its approaches in how to build out. Yeah, and I think that will sound good um, to some listeners at night, and because it's more relative to the player who's playing, it's more. Um, it, it, it implicitly it profiles the players I think we talked about how a lot of this coincides with um, the arrival of Declan Rice into the squad and I think it's the acknowledgement that you know he needs um, bedded in as it were but at the same time because it's a lot of moving around it takes for a lot of um, sort of split second decisions it takes for players to you know, there's movements and then there's counter movements. Um, if someone vacates an, an area, ideally you want someone to occupy or arrive in that area so that you can maximize passing options and you don't limit your angles, which we've, we've just seen a mixed bag of results. And I think this was a really good example of that, um, both in the Sevilla game and the Burnley game. And I think it, it's a, I think it's a good sign. I think I'm beginning to see solutions or attempts at, to get at solutions to problems that have plagued us so far this season. And I think, yeah, Zinchenko's performance that we've just talked about was a big part in in, in that. And I think it, it yeah, no, I'll, I'll end with that. Yeah. 
uh, if any listener were to want more sort of visual examples of what would what that would look like, uh, I can only recommend going on Loken's Twitter page and finding that either the two p uh, two tweet thread he just posted a few days ago, or going back a bit uh, a longer explanation on on the pivot staggering itself. It's one where the videos really help as well. It's, it's obviously yeah, exactly, difficult yeah, yeah. To, to talk about on a, on a podcast. Um, but yeah, no, the videos are on my tweets and you you don't even have to read what I said. I think you'll see what I mean. <laughs> yeah. To move on then to another player whose profile uh, in the role he's playing sort of gives us an, a, a fair few things to talk about. And that's Leandro Chossard, who came into both games here playing as the nine, as it were. Would it be unfair to say that we've seen an uptick in in fluency and in attacking dynamism when Trossard has played rather than the few games Eddie had beforehand? Absolutely. For as much as Eddie has worked on his all-around game, and I really think he has, Trossard's just a different level. He's, he's on the level of Jesus. Um, I think we, we talk about him in a vein of replicating what Jesus can give to the team from a stylistic standpoint, and that's completely accurate. But I think we look even more fluid with the Trossard in the front line than Jesus. He's more, um, I think he's more economical in his touches. I think he he actually performs, I think Havertz with him is a better mix than him and Jesus. Just with Yeah, I would agree in so far that Havertz had the opportunity to play on the right side of midfield over recent point, weeks. Because yeah. we've seen him with uh, Trossard on the left-hand side. And once both of them play there, they're kind of wanting to occupy the same areas and that creates diff- problems in and of itself. I also think, and this is the, I guess, the Jogo Bonito part of Jesus that you you enjoy and it's how he creates magic out of completely nothing, but he plays very much um, at his own rhythm. And, you know, he's a, he's a pure dribbler at heart, um, whereas Trossard is much more shifty, um, He's much more of a system player, right? Like yeah. when Jesus came in at the start, the thing he said made him like playing at Arsenal so much is that Arteta gave him freedom to play his own game and to sort of do things that weren't necessarily within the system, but just things he wanted to do in that specific moment. And Trossard is far more sort of regimented to the different positions you have to pick up and the actions you have to do in those positions and then moving on from there. There's a lot less individual creativity as it were they're, yeah they're, they're both very similar stylistically in, in in from a false nine point of view in that they're very associative and they 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 thrive in sort of central congested zones but the way in which Trossard is more associative he's much more economical with his touches it's more like it's more sort of vintage era um, tiki taka dare I say Wenger football um, yeah Whereas Jesus, again, is, is much more of a pure dribbler. Yeah. And just the ability he has in, especially against low blocks, to to gain the ball and do things in congested spaces is just so good. Yeah. He, he, so he maneuvers good. so well in those areas. Um, and I think what's also a bit underrated is, even when playing there, as someone who isn't labeled a, a natural goal scorer or a striker, he does have a really good instinct for when to crash the box. And not only that, also a sort of anticipation for second balls, which was mm, basically yeah. how he scored his goal. Yeah. 
very much things you'd associate with a poacher or a striker, things that he's also really, really good at. And that's not even mentioning the uh, shot technique and, and ball striking ability he does have off both feet as well. So those things together, taking him off the wing and into a position where he can sort of show his best qualities a lot more frequently, it, he's just so good. Yeah, he's he's really good. Like both feet. Um, I think it's, it's was it nineteen goal involvements. Nineteen in, goal involvements in six hundred, well, one thousand six hundred and seventy minutes. Right, so, which is just really that's like that's crazy. Yeah, because how many like you know nineties is that in terms of like how many games from start to finish has he actually completed? You know, uh, not many. Um, yeah, so I did note down we had twenty two zone fourteen entries which is comparatively quite high for us, I think. Um, and 79 entries into the, the stat was to the half spaces, but that's the advanced half spaces as it were, like on, on either side of zone 14, which I know for a fact is very high for us. Um, and I think Trossard played a huge part in that. Um, just in, even the receptions of, of R8s, which were, again, not few and far between, but I'd say situational, like when Rice and Havertz received in the pockets, a lot of it was got to do, or even Saka when Saka came inside, was a lot of good to do with the fluidity in the front line. Um, and I think in the absence of Jesus, Trossard, and in this iteration of an Arsenal team that struggles to build centrally, I think Trossard is the next best thing um, as a nine. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I would even go so far as to say, once Jesus is back, there's a, dis a real discussion to be had about if those two are a starter and substitute or a one a and one b type situation because i i think we underrate uh not us in in this podcast although alex has called him leandro drossard before so i'm, I'm not <laughs> letting him escape that um I, th I think his quality has sort of gone under the radar simply because of how little football he's actually played for us in the 10 months he's been here yeah. um and i really think his profile is one that could do very well, very long term as a starter also for us, yeah. I think in the in the conversation that we just had in the in the slight nuances of Trossard's game, especially when compared to Jesus, there are particular matchup matchups where um he would be better to deploy as a false nine. I don't think that's a necessarily controversial statement. I think the wonderful parts of Jesus are not only that the parts that we've mentioned, but also the fact that he's I think Pep Guardiola called him the best presser in the world. Yeah. Um, and also the fact that he actually can play as a conventional nine sometimes. And that's before even mentioning how he's a completely different player when played on either of the wings, which he can yeah. do. So, you know, he... It also, once we mentioned that, we also have to mention that we've seen Trossard play on the wing more than Jesus. And within the confines we've talked about and how we've profiled these players before, I think... I think we're both in agreement that we would rather see Trossard in the nine and Jesus play on either wing than the other way around. Yeah, I agree with that. Just one more thing I, I wanted to mention to you. This, I promise it won't be long, uh, is the performance of the eights and how they play those um, positions. Um, so in the last three games, it's been Kai Havertz on the right-hand side of midfield and Declan Rice on the left-hand side. Uh, Martin Odegaard seems to be injured. Uh, though we still have no idea what he actually has. The Norway manager himself just said that he doesn't really know what's going on with with, with Uh But yeah, that meant Kai 
uh, Harvards was able to play on the right-hand side three times now. On the Newcastle pod, we already discussed a bit of what he does in those positions, but I, I would be really interested to get your take on uh, his performances and how he fits the that right-hand side of midfield. Yeah, so I'd, as I've made very, very clear, I'd always hated the idea of him as not only a midfielder, but just on the left side um, of midfield. And I think angles are much more favourable to him on the right. Um, so the first thing I'd say is, do I think right eight is the answer for him long term? Because it's obviously having, a, I would say, a positive impact now on his performances. Uh, no, I don't think it justifies a £65 million expenditure. I don't think he is a midfielder and... You can talk about semantics like, oh, a midfielder's only midfielder in name. If you're a third midfielder, in my eyes, you're you're still a midfielder. Um, we still see him shuttling out to wide zones to receive as Odegaard would. We still see him with second phase responsibilities. I don't think we can pin the middle to have him as a second striker, as it were. So that's the first thing I'd say. Just quickly there. Yeah. What, because this is a useful sort of parallel that people have already drawn would you say he is less of a midfielder than Julian Alvarez is when he plays in a sort of yes designated yes. midfield zone and yeah, why is that I um I, I think they both have good brains insofar as insofar as they know when and where to drop um and link play and I think actually Alvarez can improve that aspect of the game but he's been he's been endow the responsibilities that he has somewhat emulating De Bruyne but I, I think like simply put I think Alvarez is better in tight spaces um, can manipulate better 1v1 in those areas um, and basically it just has the physical tools to be able to do things he wants to do um, I had a conversation with someone over the weekend that Kai Havertz is a really smart football player knows what he wants to do but can't do it um, which you know, if I I can just like I imagine say that saying that to my dad, and he'd probably tell me to shut up, and that's that's totally fair enough. Um, but I just I, I don't think again I I don't want to mention biomechanics because it. But I I just I don't I don't think he's Havertz does not look comfortable in his own body to be doing anything midfielders should be doing. Um, yeah, he's not someone who I'd want manipulating a block. Um, not someone I'd want threading a needle. I think a lot of his actions technical actions are good in a vacuum like he's a very good ball striker and he does have a very good weight of pass however when he's tasked with doing that um, at the end of an action so like dribbling with the ball which inevitably our midfielders have to do on both sides um, then he doesn't suddenly he looks really uncoordinated um, and I, would, I, think, I would say he yeah. he's good in in open spaces driving with the ball he does look yeah. a lot more clunky in in tight spaces Though I think that already has improved a bit. And I'm not sure how much of that is actually him and how much of that is the way he's been the last two and a half years. And I know we can't we can't use that as an excuse forever. But I do think there's some... I can't just see that the argument that has been made that there's been this, this small growth spurt that has led him to be so much worse technically well, than he was. I think it's... I, like the idea is Wasn't it like two and a half inch? inches, six one to six foot four is the is the again I don't know what height he was at Leverkusen but that's 
a massive difference if so which is why it's always just been the bottom line for me because it, it again it looks like he's massive yeah as well but, I, I, um, I remember him being around a meter 90 at leverkusen and he's right. about a meter 95 now so that's about five yeah. centimeters worth of worth of growth if if so I don't actually think that's ever been confirmed by anyone. It's just one of it's the prevailing weird. theories it's, around him. It, it's um, also under-discussed in general. Haaland um, grew a good inch, if not more, since arriving at City. And I have heard, again, from, from people on Twitter, just with whom I've had conversations, advance the idea that his hold-up play or general associative play from the nine has got worse. Um, it's never been good to begin with. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, but he looks more like, as uh, this person said, they look more like Hoyland does now, which is right. interesting. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, we're, run, we're off topic here. Yeah. But also, there is one thing I wanted to note just before I forget answering your question at the beginning about sort of the general play of our eights now that Declan Rice and Havertz have played eight back to back, which, you know, if, if we talked about this at the beginning of the season, I would have said Rice is our six and Havertz ideally is the nine. So it's, it's funny we find ourselves in this situation because... Yeah, I think a lot of, you know, we th- we tend to think of football's defence, midfield, attack. A lot of, all, well, all the football has got to do with sort of group situations. Um, who's on your flank? Um, you know, whether it's on a vertical axis, a horizontal axis or something else entirely. And I think the, the winger central midfielder pods, so the relationship between the, the, the central midfielder, the eight, and the winger is very relevant in terms of how our performances have swayed upwards. Yeah. Because on the left-hand side, you have Martinelli, who's a runner. And you suddenly have Rice, who is much more of a passer than than Havertz, in my eyes, from that. Um, who can manipulate a, a block somewhat and provide that underlapping run. And on the other side, you have Havertz, who Saka gets much more touches of the ball when Havertz is on that side, because we don't want Havertz to be doing the same thing as Odegaard. He also doesn't stay in the pocket as Odegaard does because that's, you know, Odegaard's brilliant at that. Um, and he's much more of a, an underlapping threat or a runner, as it were, where Saka's more of a passer. Um, so I think... And I would also say that Saka finds him in those positions a lot more than he was found on the other side. Like, once yeah. he... If you imagine Saka being on the right wing in a sort of situation where we're around the box... Havertz usually makes that run where he's in between the left back and the central defender, making that run towards it, in, like into that space. And Saka finds him a lot more often in doing that. And Havertz himself also has a lot more maneuverability in those areas because he's in angles that suit him more and he's able to do a lot more with those areas. Exactly. Uh, so I, I think, think that just that's the balance a mutual of... benefit of both of them playing together yeah. there. I think the profiling has been better. Yeah. A lot better. Yeah, I think that's about it for the for midfield talk. Um, and I think it's a good time to take a break. So we will leave you beautiful listeners with this sweet, jazzy jingle. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that sweet, jazzy jingle you were just presented with. Um, we certainly enjoyed it. And we enjoyed the performance of the last two games. And one of the big themes of the game that is irrespective of the the qualities of different players and different personnel in different positions is how we created a lot of our chances. Uh, Not just in the last two games, but 
throughout a sort of four or five game uh, sample size now. There's been a lot more crosses in recent weeks, and I think we should start with that. Um, the Sevilla game is an obvious uh, example where 90% of that game was Martinelli taking on uh, Sevilla's right back, completely destroying him, leaving him for bits, and then crossing the ball into the box with varying degrees of success. But even apart from that, in the Burnley game, our open play goal also stemmed out of uh, a cross coming in, getting deflected, and then getting into goal. Is this a, an actual strategy or a consequence of the teams we've played? Uh, both, I'd say. Um, I'd say I'd be inclined to say that for I, I wouldn't draw that much continuity between the types of crosses that were that happened in the in the Sevilla match, which were very much the result of qualitative superiority one v one on both sides, especially on on the Martinelli flank. Um, and just the ability to get on the outside where after a cross was probably the right thing to do. And I think Martinelli said that Arteta had instructed them to be more di direct, aggressive 1v1. Um, typically because we've asked our wingers to hold the width um, and recycle play. Whereas versus Burnley, um, a lot of the crosses came from the fullbacks, at least if, if memory serves, um, plus Saka as well. Um, so we had 32 attempted crosses in this game, apparently, which I was like, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot more than I remember. Um, and 13 corners. So I don't know if a cross, I, I assume a cross is not a corner. Because um, that would be would somewhat so. redundant. But yeah, I think a lot of it for Burnley was the result of whenever we were, and again, this com this comes back to the way we progressed, but whenever we were able to shift the ball around their block before the, the block was given the time to um, sort of laterally shift to the other side, that would then cause the the winger on the on the side of the, the ball, when our winger had the ball, um, for their winger to shuffle back into the back line to defend Martinelli, where their fullback would then abandon that duty. So it would cause sort of like a collapse where their 4-4-2 would collapse almost into a back bank of six. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the technical term for that is, is backwards gravity. So what that, that opens, basically just in everyone shifting into the back line, it opens space for cutbacks, which is where you see a lot of long-range goals. And it's why you see a lot of long-range goals for City, for example, because of, you know... And I've been honestly, I've been calling for more crosses because I think our, our attacking dynamics really invite it since like this time last year. Um, we saw the, I don't know if you remember the Jesus goal against Brentford last year when Shaka crossed it for him. Mm -hmm. We hardly ever. Very similar to the Shaka goal, yeah. Then consequently again Leeds. Leeds, yeah. yeah, yeah. We hardly from an Odegaard cross, yeah, exactly. And we hardly did that last season for different reasons, yeah. Um, yeah, but I think we're seeing it more this season. Um, it's it's hard to miss with Havertz at the back post. Um, we are really targeting him, I think. And I was really, really happy with the with the amount of crosses that went to him. Particularly, well, I was going to say, particularly in the first half, he did come off in like the fifty eighth minute. But not that he went close to scoring, although he did on that corner incident. Um, but just that we seem to be finding that. And it, it's a very 
deliberate part of the game plan. Um, but yeah, I think the Burnley setup certainly did incentivize it. Yeah, and as you already mentioned, it's uh, instructive to dis uh, discern between those sort of traditional crosses you, you would think of where a winger just puts it in the mixer, as it were, and these sort of deliberate half-space crosses into the box to a player who's freeing himself from his marker. Um, coming off from that, another interesting aspect of the last few weeks is the sheer amount of set beer goals we've scored and created. Um, and not just that we created and, and scored these goals, but the variety as well to them. There's been quite a few different set-piece routines we, we've ran against different teams and probably in accordance to how they defend their set-pieces. Um, I, I will say, and I've said it before, it's where my brain switches off whenever there's a corner and I know how threatening we are and still my brain just switches off because it's not open play stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, I will admit I, I'm very, very bad at analyzing set-pieces. Oh, there's yeah. just far too much it. going on. <laughs> there's far too much going on within the box for me to discern what is instruction and what just happens as a consequence. But just on this, in the Sheffield United game, there both of our set piece goals came from us crowding the keeper, there being a layoff and some blocking actions happening around the ball to then have a free player who's able to take a shot with his foot, uh, which probably. Again, I'm far from an expert in this situation. Is 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 a consequence of how Sheffield United reacted to having uh, themselves penned into the six yard box rather than the eighteen yard box on corners. Um, and in the Burnley game, uh, we were also extremely threatening. Um, I think a caveat I would like to make here is that, um, and coaches, including Guardiola, have talked about this before, is that. As a general rule, your set pieces are as good as your set piece takers. And I think there's a big uptick in Trossard taking corners rather than our usual Saka on one side and Martinelli on the other side. Um, it's it's a skill that's irrespective of, of ball striking because they're both good ball strikers. It's it's a very specific um, non-dynamic action you're, you're doing there. And that's just a unique skill. And Trossard seems to have it a lot more. Um, so that definitely helped but the the theme of when how we were um threatening on those corners was very similar where we again crowded the box uh, crowded the six yard box and sort of penned them in yeah both of uh, both of our like our second and third goal especially the saliva one was just yeah, so hilarious yeah. the saliva the saliva one is apparent because a uh what you're doing there uh in crowding the uh, the six yard box so much is you're taking james trafford basically out of the game who's a quite inexperienced and b relatively short for a goalkeeper i think he's about six one six two um and he seemed to have a lot of trouble in dealing with uh short corners coming so not short corners but corners coming a lot closer to him yeah and the saliba one is just the perfect example of that where he just rose above trafford to yeah. head into an empty net um and there were a few more uh threatening ones and then obviously the zinchenko one happened as well where we were again threatening from those situations but the, that was clear and then the rebound uh ended up coming to zinchenko who still had a lot of work to do to get that ball uh the way he did and props to him because that was just very very good yeah um yeah i i don't know do you have any 
other thing to add on set pieces yeah this season and generally there's, there's one thing because i i really cannot contribute anything positive to yeah analytic discussion Same. of set pieces but i remember in i think it was the the chelsea pod when we were talking about um how we're in, in the domain of, of of marginal gains and i think set pieces is really one of those like mm-hmm I think an increasing amount of goals are now coming from set pieces. You see, with I think James Ward-Prowse has got nine assists in the in the Premier League yeah. this season. Um, there, there, that that's another instructive example of as well that set piece delivery is as important as anything else. Because yeah, yeah West Ham have a lot of big guys, but yeah. nobody was able to find them as good as as James Ward-Prowse does, and they're generating ninety percent of their their attacking output that way now. It's just hilarious. Um, but I, I was saying that, and we've talked about this before, but how the evolution of this team from this season to, sorry, yeah, from last season to this, mm-hmm. one of the predominant themes has been how much we've improved out of possession and how we've approached games almost from an out of possession lens, um, yeah. even at home. And also recruited with yeah, the main emphasis on out of possession. Yeah, completely. Um, and we saw that against Spurs and against United. We gave them quite a lot of respect. Um, some would say too much. And I I think I at least problematized that approach just in saying, do we have, you know, it, <laughs> and uh, Ten Hag obviously mentioned high turnovers and all that talk. But wh- when you do generate these high turnovers or you do um, high possession regains, what do they actually mean if you can't? convert on them do we have the sort of profiles in the squad to be able to make this tactic you know does it tick over in in marginal gains and i think some of them lead to corners and just and then separately completely separately from the point i'm making corners are as we i've just said com- their conversion are um in the domain of marginal gains if, if you manage to make them tick over so I guess what I'm saying is it's almost like we seem to be isolating this this tactic of, of getting a corner. Um, it's like whenever... I don't know how many corners we've had we had against United, but when Martinelli was, was penned against Wan-Bissaka, I don't know how many times he got past Wan-Bissaka, maybe once. Wan-Bissaka mm-hmm. had him, quote-unquote, locked up. But they, all of those situations were corners. And we ended up scoring with the last one. And we look dangerous on every single one. So it's like, it's almost the, the, my, the, where my mind went was because just having watched the Rugby World Cup was, I don't know if you watched the South Africa England game. Right. So basically, South Africa were basically able to, on penalty situations, they were like, okay, we're going to have a scrum. And they were so, they were physically overpowering England so much that they were forcing penalties and they could basically cheat the system by just getting a scrum every single... And it's it's like that. It's like we seem to, in a, in a game that cannot be reduced because football is so complex, there's so many different... And so dynamic as well. Exactly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a game of dy- dynamism. It seems that it's a tactic to... It's something you can isolate. I, I think that's true to an extent. I think another thing that sort of goes to, towards this is um, we have this this field tilt thing going on on Twitter right now. And it, it is the case that we are a lot more domi- territorially dominant than last season. 
And again, as a consequence of that, and partly as well as a consequence of our central access issues, we have a lot of arrivals in the final third, and we have a lot of arrivals in the final third from our wings. And what that usually ends up with is a situation where your winger is dribbling towards the opponent by the byline, and those usually end in corners. So simply by the amount of time we spend in the opposition third, yeah. we are likely to get more corners than not. Um, and then obviously the personnel does its thing as well with usually a backline of six, two people and above, uh, Declan Rice, Kai Havertz as well. There's, there's a, also a substantial height difference in the team now. That's what I was trying to get out with the opposition talk, which you just summed up in one conversation, uh, one line, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the, the whole field tilt thing and, and the, yeah. the consequences of that, because naturally they're going to be more corners, like you said. Yeah. Um, I think we can leave it at that for now. Um, I really enjoyed this. It was a lot more positive than the last yeah. podcast we did, I must say, which is a nice change. So thank you, Lorcan, for coming onto the podcast, first of all. Um, thank you, listeners, for listening to this. Uh, if you like this podcast, you can rate and review it on each podcast platform you use to stream these podcasts and if you have any general questions topics suggestions for the podcast as well as just the simple podcast question suggestions uh, that we do at the top of this show you can tweet them at us at podshot pod which is also in the description or if you want to be a bit more formal you can email them at us uh, at podshotpod at gmail.com Look out this week. There will be a new episode uh, of Podshot focusing on the women's team with uh, myself, Will, and Max. Um, that will be coming to, uh, to you at the end of the week. Um, until then, we sign off here. Uh, the music for this show is made by James Blake, and you can find him on Spotify at JWBlake. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.